This is my conversation with Jason Crawford. Jason is the founder of The Roots of Progress, where he writes and speaks about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. Previously, he spent 18 years as a software engineer, engineering manager, and startup founder. We talk about the need to study progress. We tackle the question of whether progress makes humans any happier, optimism, solutionism, and some more. I hope you enjoy. So most people don't think much about progress. They take it for granted, something that quote-unquote just happens. You've talked and written a lot on why we need to study progress and create a new philosophy of progress. Could you tell us a bit about how this new philosophy of progress might potentially look like, and again, why we need it? Yeah, sure. Um, I think you're right that people do uh, take material progress for granted and, and perhaps all kinds of progress. Um, I think the simple fact is that um, the material progress of the last couple of hundred years, the improvements in living standards, are one of the greatest things ever to happen to mankind and uh, an enormous boon for humanity. And I think that if you care about human well-being and want to see sort of humans live better lives, then you've got to just be a little in awe of that amazing achievement of the last few hundred years. And uh, I think you have to ask a few basic questions. One is, how did it happen? Two, why did it take so long? Uh, why was it that per capita incomes didn't really start growing until just a couple hundred years ago? And uh, three, how do we keep it going? Um, those are the core questions that animate my work and have uh, and got me to start studying progress. And there are you know a lot of different sort of factors underlying that, but I think you know one out of a number of factors, an important one, is uh, our belief in progress. Do we think that progress is both possible and desirable? Um, progress is not automatic or inevitable. It's the result of human choice and effort, ultimately of, of human agency. And so we need to recognize and exercise that agency in order to, to keep driving things forward. Um, I think that applies to the past and it also applies to the present and future. If we stop believing in progress, then um, you know ultimately it will slow down, stagnate, um, perhaps even stop or regress. Um, and so that's fundamentally why I think we need uh, we need a philosophy of progress. We need answers to basic questions like what is progress, uh, what is what is the nature of uh, of ourselves as human beings, um, what is our relationship to nature itself. What is the role of technology in human life and in improving human life? Um, can we improve human life? Can we improve the conditions of life? Um, and can we do so sort of consistently and reliably and without undue risks and problems and, and hazards and setbacks and complications? Um, uh, and if so, how do we do it? Like, what are the root causes of progress? What are the conditions that it requires? These are, you know, just sort of some basic uh, questions around the nature of, of, of humanity and the nature of progress that uh, that I think constitute what I call the a philosophy of progress. I use that term in the same way as you might uh, discuss the philosophy of law or the philosophy of science, right? As in um, basic questions about the field that sort of overlap perhaps with philosophy as, as such, uh, as in, you know, the, the kind of fundamental nature of humans and of, and of the universe. Um, and so I think those, those basic questions are extremely important as we figure out, A, how to make progress, and B, how to steer it for the best possible future for humanity. Hmm. Yeah, when you talk about the questions we need to answer as human beings relating to progress, you sort of break it down and then make it complete as a whole philosophy of progress. And so I think a better way to begin would be to ask you how you think of progress. 
do you think of it in a linear way or something that compounds with each successive step? What is progress and how do you think of it? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, you mentioned it being linear or not. I would say almost nothing about progress is linear. Um, what is it? So there are different kinds of progress at a high level. Um, often what we mean is um, material progress, specifically in science, technology, uh, industry, kind of business, the economy, uh, the accumulation of wealth, the building out of infrastructure, and so forth, and ultimately the improvements in sort of material living conditions and you know what's called standard of living. Um, the fact that we can grow uh, all the food that we need um, in in most parts of the world, um, that we you know we, we don't have any problems putting food on the table. In fact, we have an abundant variety of of fresh and delicious food. Um, the fact that we can get anywhere in the world within twenty four hours. The fact that we can, um, you know, manufacture and construct uh, robust, uh, safe, comfortable homes that have heating and air conditioning, that have, you know, kitchens with uh, refrigerators and, and stoves. Um, the fact that we can um, protect ourselves from disease and, and in many cases cure disease when it happens. Um, the fact that mothers very rarely die in childbirth anymore and infants very rarely die in their first year of life. Both of those things used to be quite common. Um, the fact that we can you know, communicate with each other and that um, we can form relationships with people anywhere on the globe, whether it's personal or professional, you know, for, for business, for socializing. Um, the fact that we can then go see those people and meet them in person if we want. The fact that we have access to almost all of the knowledge and uh, and philosophy and art and culture of of the world and of all of history is is at our fingertips if we have access to the internet which now the majority of adults on the planet do um, you know all of those things are just examples of ways uh, I mean the fact that um, you know uh, dirty dangerous manual labor has um, you know largely been reduced and uh, you know and now work of all kinds is less physical and generally safer um, than it used to be, whether you're working in the fields, in the factory, in the mines, in forestry, um, or, you know, whether you're lucky enough to not have to do one of those things and be able to work in an office or, uh, you know, some other, um, you know, maybe in retail or, or something that's, you know, indoors, fairly non-physical, fairly comfortable, um, et cetera. So there are all of these different, um, you know, ways in which the material, you know, quality of our life has been improved. Now, um, technological and industrial progress is sort of one major thread or um, uh, of, of progress that I think about in terms of the overall concept of progress in history. There are two more. Um, uh, another one that closely goes along with it, of course, is the the progress in science and knowledge. And, um, and, and the advance of our understanding of the world. Um, and then third is progress in morality, society, and governance. Um, and this one is, I would say, a little bit less obvious, a little bit less tangible, maybe a little bit less consistent and clear. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward, one step back. But I do think on the whole, um, we've actually made tremendous uh, social and moral progress throughout the course of humanity and even in the last couple of hundred years. Um, at the same time that we had a scientific and industrial revolution, we had also uh, a revolution, in fact, sometimes literal political revolutions, 
uh, overturning an, uh, a you know centuries almost millennia old system of monarchy and replacing it with in in you know most places many places um, now uh, constitutional republics or constitutional monarchies in some cases. Uh, that have, uh, you know, that no longer have absolute government, that have some form of limited government, they have some form of representative government. Um, And we have uh, much closer to equal rights for many, many more people. Um, uh, We we have, you know, essentially reached, even if you, you know, some some people would argue we have not fully implemented uh, the, the basic idea that, you know, all uh, adults uh, of, you know, whatever race or sex or, or, or anything are, you know, have the same sort of basic equal rights. Um, and so uh, those are all, you know, all, all three of those areas, again, essentially, if it boil it down to a word, technology, uh, science, and government or, or uh, you know, morality. Um, all of those areas, I think, have seen enormous progress in the last three to 500 years, um, uh, and and even you know even more recently than that, um, and so that's what I think of overall as human progress. Now, there's another sense of the word, uh, which is progress in the outcomes that we actually care about. At the end of the day, why do we care about all of this? It's because I would hold that all of these things uh, improve the human condition. They improve human life and well-being, and so ultimately, true progress, human progress, is progress in those outcomes progress you know in, in advancements improvements in human life and and well-being um and what exactly that means is a whole topic of debate um but basically living better lives longer healthier happier lives lives with more freedom choice and opportunity um lives that we can make everything that we want them to be and 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 can be as fulfilling uh as as they can possibly be yeah yeah So coming back to the material progress argument, I think I'm playing devil's advocate here, but you mentioned all the amazing advantages of making progress. But some people might argue, why bother making progress in the first place? I mean, look at all this destruction because of following our human wants and making all this meaningless progress when you account for all the destruction and all the quote-unquote going against nature, that we shouldn't go against nature. I think you've spoken about this before borrowing from someone else whose name I forget, you say that this is romantic environmentalism where people are just in love with this idea of nature where humans, of course, are not included and that nature is the supreme good and we shouldn't go against it. But in reality, creating technology is what makes us human and making progress is entirely natural. So I would see that as a go for progress and doing what humanity wants. But then, again, do you have any other counter arguments for those who say, why bother about progress? Progress isn't good. And perhaps if humans didn't exist in the first place, that would be good. Yeah. Well, my standard of what is good is what is good for humans. What is, uh, you know, what is the, for the, the betterance, the furtherance of human life and, and well-being. If you, uh, not you personally, if someone wants to set themselves up as an enemy of humanity and say that uh, things would be better if we don't exist, they are, of course, welcome to do so. Um, but I don't see how we can have any argument at that point. Uh, at that point, it's just a battle or a war. Um, you want to fight against humanity? All right, I'm going to fight for it. Um, but uh, I think there's a you know there's a different view, um, and it was Stuart Brand I think who who gave me the terminology or from from whom I heard the terminology of the scientific environmentalist versus the romantic. 
Um, yeah, you know, there is this uh, there is this question of should we go against nature um, or should we perhaps work with nature? And I think um, there's an equivocation on the term nature, or there's there's two different senses of that word, and it's important not to equivocate between them. So, in one sense of the term nature, you might think of natural law, like the 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 kind of immutable you know way the universe is that that we can't change and um certainly we need to recognize and work with uh you know reality and the external world and nature in that sense um uh i mean you know bacon said that nature to be commanded must be obeyed and so we have to obey nature as in obey natural law um because you, you can't really fight it but there's a different sense of nature um which is uh, nature, in a certain sense, is just whatever exists or happens uh, apart from or without human agency. So there is, you know, the, there are the choices that we make, and there's uh, our kind of active ability to identify what we want in the world and how the world and our lives could be improved, and then go out and and get it and make it and create it and and to make the world better, um, to improve our lives and sometimes to improve the, the world around us, to improve our own environment, to improve on this form of nature, um, in, in order to, to create better lives for ourselves. Um, we, uh, you know, we till and, and irrigate and fertilize fields in order to make agriculture better. Um, we build shelters in order to, you know, to, to make uh, a better, you know, to make a roof over our heads, to make it better to sleep and, and live. Um, we build canals and we dredge rivers and we build dams and levees in order to improve our waterways. There are all sorts of ways in which we improve on the natural world. Um, Stuart Brand also says that you, one way to think about the environment is as infrastructure. And uh, uh, infrastructure is something, of course, that you want to take care of. It's something you want to maintain. But it's also something that you want to upgrade from time to time. And so um, I think that is, that is a good way to think about the environment as, as infrastructure, essential infrastructure that, you know, that, that we need, but also that is here to serve us. You, you, the, the infrastructure exists in order to serve its, its clients, its customers, not the other way around. Um, so I think that it's important to distinguish between those two senses. Uh, in the same way that you know Bacon said, "Nature to be commanded must be obeyed." He was a, you know he was kind of using nature in two different senses. Uh, in in you know how do you command something and obey it at the same time? Right? Isn't that an inverse relationship? Well, the laws of nature must be obeyed, such that the random you know chance uh, facts of the natural world around us can be commanded. And uh, I think that's the right relationship to have to nature. So obviously, we have to work with it. Um, if we try to, you know, defy immutable laws, and I don't just mean the laws of physics, but, you know, if we try to, um, you know, use more of a resource than actually exists, or to, um, you know, use the environment as infrastructure without taking care of and maintaining that infrastructure in proper condition, then, of course, um, we're going to have problems. I mean, in London in the 1800s, when they were dumping more and more sewage into the Thames River, uh, you know, they were going against nature in a certain sense of you can't dump that much crap, literally, into the river uh, and not have it get absolutely you know, polluted and filthy and stinking. And in fact, when that seeps back into your drinking water, you're going to get cholera epidemics, which is exactly what happened. You know, that is a way in which we have to obey nature. Um, but once we understood that aspect of nature, what did we do? We built better sewer systems. 
and in London, there was a massive project to build a sewer system that would take the sewage out and away and get it out of the river uh, where it was being dumped and ultimately get it you know, far out into the English Channel where it could get dispersed and where it wouldn't uh, you know, it would be so diluted in um, in in the overall uh, you know body of water that it wouldn't bother anybody. So, um, you know that that's just an example of how you can go wrong by uh, by failing to you know obey nature, but then once you understand it, you can obey it and uh, and command it. Right. I'm glad you gave that example because you were talking about obeying the laws of nature, and I would think that it is impossible to do otherwise. It's impossible to defy the laws of nature because unlike the laws of the state, the laws of nature are fixed and you can't break them. Let's say that by the laws of the state, you can't drive beyond 80 miles per hour on a particular road. But nevertheless, you do overspeed and you break the law and the policeman gives you a ticket for it. But the laws of nature in the literal sense aren't like that. Whatever happens in the universe is within those laws, so you can't really not obey the laws of nature. You're always obeying them. But now when you give those examples, it's clearer what you were hinting at, that though you can, in the literal sense, be obeying the laws of nature, you can still not be utilizing the natural elements the right way. Yeah, you can't literally break the laws of physics, but you can think of there being, um, you know, immutable laws of, uh, of human nature, like... Um, if you expose uh, a whole city's population to raw sewage, there will be disease. If you uh, don't, uh, you know, if you have a diet that doesn't contain the right vitamins, you will suffer from that. You know, you'll suffer malnutrition, vitamin deficiencies. If you expose yourself to radiation, you will suffer, uh, you know, burns and and radiation sickness if it's extreme or, you know, long term, you'll suffer cancer if it's if it's at a lower dose. Um, So, you know, there are there are these kinds of laws and the equivalent of the policeman's ticket for speeding is uh, is the cancer or the cholera or, you know, whatever it is that that people suffer. Yes, I want to turn to happiness now. You, you mentioned that with progress, we want to be making people healthier, happier, and increasing their standard of living. And I think happiness is also important to discuss when we are talking about any philosophy of progress. So my personal views on happiness have been evolving for a while. Presently, I don't value it over, quote-unquote, everything else. But I care about it enough that it does trouble me that we've made all this mind-boggling progress and are supposedly so much better off than before. Yet we are almost certainly not any happier than our primitive ancestors in the conventional sense. It's like we're on this intergenerational hedonic treadmill that makes us adapt to the present and we are unable to go beyond a certain happiness threshold or pleasure threshold. So I'm just curious what you think about this relationship or maybe there isn't any relationship between happiness in the conventional sense and progress. What makes you think we're no happier than our uh, our distant ancestors? Well, I've been stressing the word conventional. So in the conventional sense, specifically when you're thinking of the word related to pleasure, and I now tend not to think of it that way, yet in the pleasure sense of the word uh, happiness, we have certain neurological features and we're sort of wired to stay below a certain pleasure threshold we keep returning to the state of normalcy from excitement and fulfillment, then you experience that whole rush again upon another thing you desire, and it's like you're forever on a hedonic treadmill. Okay, so by that logic, 
nothing ever would change anybody's level of happiness. Happiness is just sort of immutable and unrelated to circumstances, you know, completely. Like, does, does that make sense? It does, I think. But I wanted to share something fascinating, though, later that would give a one-up to making progress in this case. So in the future, we, with progress, we could change our neurophysiology. We might be able to create a certain drug that could make the whole population neurologically happier. We, you know, we might already be doing this with antidepressant pills, but what if we could make a pill for everyone that is, of course, handled very wisely and won't have any unwanted effects, and it could let us be in a constant flux of pleasure while still leaving enough room to solve our most pressing problems fast and make progress and all that. Maybe it's science fiction, but I like to think of science fiction as inspiration for the real world. It might, it might not always be so, but... It still is that way sometimes. But anyway, right now, in the conventional sense of happiness, thinking of it like pleasure, uh, I would say that we still aren't happier. Um, so first, let's distinguish between two potential senses of happiness. Um, one, the, the one that you're calling the conventional sense, let's, let's call that pleasure. Um, so a kind of um, moment. So, so pleasure is a, a momentary sort of moment to moment, um, you know, fleeting or ephemeral kind of, uh, uh, mental state, um, probably, you know, um, has some neurological correlates, I'm sure. Um, and pleasure is the kind of thing that you might get from a warm bed, from a nice meal. Um, maybe there's even some moment to moment psychological pleasure from, um, uh, I don't know, Oh, you know, seeing uh, a beautiful sight or, or uh, you know, something like that. Um, then there's kind of a, a more conceptual, psychological, uh, and a more long-term, you know, enduring psychological state, which we might think of as life satisfaction. Um, uh, and so these are, you know, when we think about happiness, we can actually think of them, you know, we, we might actually mean either of those things. I'm not sure that you, you've been saying that the conventional view is happiness is pleasure. I'm not convinced that is actually the full conventional view. Um, that is one conventional view among philosophers. And I, I uh, there's, uh, I forget the, the term for this, but there are, there are different theories of um, what constitutes human well-being. And one such theory is that happiness is just um, essentially pleasure. I can't remember if this is the theory, um, if this is what hedonism, the term hedonism refers to, or if this is one of a number of different things that the term uh, might refer to within academic philosophy. Regardless, there's a theory that says happiness is just pleasure. Moment, and you just sum up moment-to-moment pleasure, maybe you subtract off moment-to-moment pain, and then that, that sum total is uh, is your well-being. I think that human well-being is actually something um, uh, broader than that and more conceptual and more of an overall integrated um, picture. Um, So uh, I think that if I think about what makes for the good life and what is the life that people actually want, it's not just a life of moment-to-moment pleasure. Um, It is also a life in which we are exercising our full capabilities, in which we are exploring, learning, growing, maybe challenging ourselves, um, taking on uh, you know ambitious goals, um, having excitement and adventure and romance. All of these things are part of the ideal life. The ideal life is not sitting in a vat, um, you know, being fed chemicals on an IV. 
Um, I mean, you know, I mean, if you can, you can imagine that you could, uh, you know, you could just be sitting in a bed all day with, um, you know, servants, uh, or maybe robots or something, you know, coming to take care of your every need and whim. You wouldn't even need to walk anywhere. You could just be carried around. Um, you know, you wouldn't even need to wipe yourself. You could just, you know, have somebody, you know, have somebody take care of every physical bodily movement. Um, and I know that this kind of, we actually have an example of this kind of life. I'm very aware of it because, um, I have a one-year-old daughter and, you know, the, the early months of her life were exactly like this. If, you know, if be, if, if, uh, if having all of your material needs met with a minimum of effort was like the goal of human life, then she basically would have reached the pinnacle of human life in her first year. Um, she had, you know, we were doing absolutely everything for her. We took care of every little whim and need. Um, but it's not the life that she wants and it's not the life that we want for her. Right. And you can see it in her, uh, if you ever become a parent or, or take care of a, of a, of an infant, you'll see this. They don't want to have everything done for them and they don't want to just sit there and have their needs taken care of. As soon as they can, they want to move around. They want to explore. They want to learn about the world. They want to, uh, they want to learn how to, uh, you know, they, they want to learn locomotion. They want to learn how to get around. They want to learn to crawl and then to walk. Um, and they have independent streaks, you know, um, uh, my daughter, she'll, uh, there was a time just a month or two ago when she stopped letting us feed her with a spoon. She just decided overnight, I want to feed myself. And she grabbed the spoon and she won't let us do it anymore. And so they have these, uh, these streaks of independence where they, um, you know, where they, they just decide I'm going to exercise my capabilities now. And I think that is, you know, a lot of where life satisfaction comes from. So, you know, that was a bit of a digression, but I think we need to, um, get away from this notion that uh, that that what matters in life, that human well-being is just about uh, this kind of moment-to-moment pleasure or just about having material needs met. Um, and that's not what progress is about. That's not even what material progress is about. Um, a lot of material progress is about meeting our needs because if those physical needs are not met, then we're certainly not happy. Um, but a lot of it too is about expanding the scope of our knowledge, expanding uh, choice and freedom. Think about what the um, you know the overall the industrial revolution and the the consequent you know what Deirdre McCluskey calls the great enrichment, the enormous rise in living standards, um, and, and all and the the and what we've done with connecting the globe uh, in in a network of transportation and and information with the internet. Think about what all of those things have done for us. That the choice and the opportunity and the freedom that they've given us. Think about the choice that we have to pick a career for ourselves. Um, you know, uh, just a few hundred years ago, ha- half or more of the workforce had to be farmers just in order to feed the rest of the population. Um, many people were trapped in the in the Middle Ages. Many people were uh, sort of trapped into um, into careers because it was what was handed down from their father, or because it was the, what they were an indentured you know servant to do, or apprentice to do, or they were <coughs> excuse me, or they were locked out of careers because of the guild system. Um, uh, today we have so much more opportunity to decide what we want to do with our lives. Um, imagine the think of the ability that we have to find the right romantic partner to marry who we want, um, both just because of the practical ability to meet more people online and and in person, uh, the ability to travel to to those people to meet them in person when we when we want, um, the ability to to migrate uh, to to be with those people. Um, all, all of that ability didn't used to exist. Not to mention the social. Uh, conventions and restrictions and the moral, you know, conventions that said, no, you must marry someone of your tribe or of your race or of your religion. And, and you know, so many of those social strictures have, have been dropped or at least weakened and, and loosened. 
Um, so, uh, so, so material progress and the growth of wealth and infrastructure has actually given us um, the the underpinnings of a lot of uh, you know intellectual and spiritual uh, progress as well. Yeah, definitely. And all that progress has led to these many choices. And happiness, in this sense, is quite a more optimistic way to look at the world. But that, I think, let's turn to optimism. You aren't a fan of that word. You instead have a very cool term called solutionism, and you consider yourself a solutionist. I quote from a PC wrote for MIT Tech Review, Those who identify as optimists can be too quick to dismiss or downplay the problems of technology, while self-styled technology pessimists or progress skeptics can be too reluctant to believe in solutions. To embrace both the reality of problems and the possibility of overcoming them, we should be fundamentally neither optimists nor pessimists, but solutionists. End quote there. So, I want to hear your take on David Deutsch's sense of optimism, which could actually be seen as a form of solutionism since he claims that all problems are soluble, and optimism is understanding that all evil is a lack of knowledge. So, I would think that fundamentally sounds solutionist, but I'd like to hear your take on it. Yeah, I basically agree. I'm a fan of Deutsch, and um, I'm I'm happy to embrace um, his uh, definition of op or, or I'm happy to embrace optimism uh, according to his definition. Um, I'm not against the term, and uh, you know, plenty of people I respect and admire call themselves optimists, and I will even call myself an optimist from time to time. Um, but I try not to use the term so much because I do think it has there are many different senses of optimism, and um, I think it can be. Uh, uh, unclear or confusing or vague as to which one you mean exactly. And I think that some forms of optimism, uh, I, w- I would say, yes, I am that form of optimist, like fundamentally all the time. And then there are other forms which I think are much more contingent. Um, so uh, th- that is, in, there are times when uh, there are certain contexts in which we should be optimistic and another context in which we should be pessimistic. So um, could you expand on that? I think that it, yeah. So in particular, um, so I've distinguished between descriptive versus prescriptive optimism. So descriptive optimism is uh, optimism about is basically um, are things going well? Are things on the right track? Uh, are we set up for success? Do you think the future is going to be bright? Um, uh, and that could be because there aren't any major challenges facing us, or the challenges that we face will be relatively easy to overcome, or you know whatever. Um, and then, you know, descriptive pessimism would be saying, hey, actually, we're set up for major challenges that we don't know how to overcome, and uh, there's a big risk here, or we're on the wrong track, or things are getting worse. Um, and, you know, there are areas where I am descriptively optimistic, um, and there are areas where I'm descriptively pessimistic, Um for instance, I'm, I tend to be fairly pessimistic about politics. Um, I am optimistic about the technology of nuclear power, for instance, but I'm very pessimistic about the politics of nuclear power, which I think is pretty terrible. And I don't see great you know, solutions or I think they're going to be very difficult. Um, you know, so, so that's one example. Um, uh, but uh, there's another type of optimism I've talked about, which is prescriptive optimism. That is essentially, okay, well, at the end of the day, no matter whether the future is rosy or dark, what should we do? Um, and prescriptive optimism says no matter what, we should work for a better future. We should try to solve the problems that are ahead of us, whether they're going to be easy or hard, whether they're large or small, um, whether we you know, need to 
um, take advantage of great opportunities in front of us. That's the rosy picture. Or whether we need to attempt to snatch uh, victory from the jaws of defeat. That would be the dark picture. Um, in either case, we need to exercise uh, the the best of our abilities and and the best of our efforts in order to uh, you know to try to fight against the problems and, um, and and to find solutions. Right. So that's what that solutionism really is. Um, and so I'm a prescriptive optimist all the way, one hundred percent, no matter what the situation. And so I think that you know the people that I I particularly um, uh, feel uh, aligned with when they say optimism, I think usually that's the kind of optimism they're talking about. Lots of people have come up this uh, uh, from you know from uh, using use different terms and and, and different um, you know uh, ways of describing a, a similar thing. Um, but in particular, in that article that I wrote for the MIT Tech Review, you know, I kind of contrasted, um, I, I pointed out that there's a kind of a blind optimism and a blind pessimism, and both are wrong. Blind optimism is just complacency. It's just not being even being able to see problems and risks and not being able to see the, you know, the contingent, the descriptive, uh, you know, pessimism when it's warranted. Um, but then there's blind pessimism also, which is only seeing the problems and not seeing the potential for solutions. So I think we should be, you know, we shouldn't be blind in either direction. Neither of those are helpful. Um, instead, what I said in that article is we should uh, recognize the reality of problems when they do exist. That's maybe the, the descriptive pessimism. But we should always be looking for solutions. That's the prescriptive optimism. Yeah, I like the distinction between prescriptive and descriptive optimism. And definitely, we should be prescriptively optimistic all the time. Uh, even if you bet on the end of the world and you win, you aren't going to get your money back. So, yeah. So, do you have any criticisms to Deutsch's philosophy? Because I don't see you've got much content revolving around his work. Yeah, I haven't haven't written a ton about it. Um, uh, generally, I'm a big fan. Uh, so, I read his book, The Beginning of Infinity, um, and I've heard him speak on a number of occasions. So, uh, generally a, a fan. I think more people should read his stuff. Um, uh, I think that uh, where I st- where I have potential differences are on some of the finer points of epistemology. Um, in particular, um, I'm a little more sympathetic to what I would term induction, um, although I don't know that Deutsch and I would actually mean exactly the same thing by that term. Um, but I'm a little more sympathetic to the notion that um, uh, that perception is the base of knowledge and indeed that knowledge has something that could be called a base. Um, whereas I think Deutsch would, um, Deutsch might argue against that very notion. Um, I think we are actually pretty close in, uh, on epistemological questions, but we might, there might be some disagreements on some of those finer points. Well, why would you say all knowledge is based on perception? Is it so just to clarify that that would be sensory experience, right? Perception. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I think that's ultimately that is our contact with reality. That is the that is the input that we get from reality, and there's nothing else. Um, anything that you add on top of that, um, reasoning, imagination, hypotheses, um, explanations. All of that is um, sort of manipulating ultimately information, you know, manipulating and trying to give structure to, um, uh, you know, information that ultimately came from the senses. So it's it's literally our, our only input. Um, and so I think there's nothing else that could possibly be, uh, you know, a base for knowledge. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to turn to the final question because you're obviously geared towards making the future better and more exciting through doing the work today. And 
Although we cannot even vaguely predict what it'll be like in a thousand years hence, if you could, what message would you give to people living in a millennium forward from today? Anything you'd want them to know or keep in mind despite the still superior knowledge they would have created in all that time? I would just want them to remember where we started, where we came from. A thousand years from now, if progress continues, it will be even easier than it is today to take all of it for granted. And, uh, you know, we have just a couple hundred years of really intense progress, uh, very rapid progress to look back on. Um but a thousand years from now, they'll have something like, you know, they'll have over a thousand years of very rapid progress. In fact, maybe they'll see progress that is unimaginably rapid even to us today. And so I would just want them to stay connected to their history. Uh, and just as we today think back on uh, everyone from, you know, Newton and Darwin to Pasteur to uh, Edison to Steve Jobs, and think about all that they did to create the amazing modern world. Um, I would like those people of a thousand years ago to, to remember all of the names and all of the, the, the struggles and the trials and, uh, and tribulations and, and um, you know, all of the work of all of the humans who came before them to create the world that they enjoy. Wow. That's, that's a lovely answer and a great place to conclude this conversation. So, I'll put links to all this in the description, but just for the listeners, where can people find your work? Where can they connect with you? Yeah, um, you can find uh, my writing at rootsofprogress.org and you can subscribe there to my email list. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. My handle is Jason Crawford. Awesome. All those links will be in the episode description. And Jason, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time here. It was a great conversation. Absolutely. This was a fun conversation. Thanks for having me on.